episode of Bookalicious back in the bookstacks in Wrexham Library. Uh, I'm Paul Gerrett and today I'm delighted to say I have Dave McCall, better known as David Ebsworth. Hello good, Dave. Good morning Paul. I've dragged you in here. Um, so we're talking to anybody out there who gets book tokens for Christmas. This is an essential buy, the new book uh, Blood Among the Threads. Um, that's what's encouraged me to get you in here today. But Dave, I think this is your 14th, is it 14th book? Golly, it depends how you count. <laughs> Officially, this is the 12th. Okay. Um, but there is what there was a very early book that's now out of print called The Jacobite's Apprentice. And there is also a novella, which is only available in on uh, ebook. Uh, as an ebook, so yeah, fourteen. Fourteen, in, in, yeah, in it total. is 14. But this is officially yeah. this is the yeah. twelve. Yeah, uh, well, so I should say, you, you know, you you're, you you've written well pretty much since you retired. You've been writing, haven't you? Uh, it's just coming up to twelve years now. <clears throat> wow, and so fourteen, but so it's more than a book a year. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, you you uh, for those that don't know, um, historical fiction is um, what what you publish. Um, you've covered everything from early Britain, sixth uh, century Britain, sixth century Britain. Done um, Zulu Wars, Africa, so yes. that's 19th century. You have done Spanish Civil War, your yes. Jack Telford trilogy. Yeah. Uh, then 18th century, 17th, 18th century with the Yale, the Yale uh, trilogy. trilogy. Uh, I'm now I'm, I'm leaving some out now. Battle of Waterloo. Battle of Waterloo. How, how can, can we I forget? Yes, the Battle how of Waterloo. Can we forget that? Uh, well, we'll talk, I'll probably talk about all of these at some point. But Blood Among the Threads is a slight departure for you, isn't it? Because this is a, this really is a murder mystery. It's a crime novel. I was when I sort of rebranded myself when just after we published this, and I started saying that I'm now writing historical crime novels but actually when I thought about it almost all of the books that I've written I've got a crime stroke thriller element to it and um, uh, I, I was explaining separately that one of the early books that are out the Assassin's Mark which is based in in the during the early during the latter part of the Spanish Civil War um, had, has been described as uh, homage to Catalonia uh, meets murder on the Orient Express because that's exactly what it yeah. is. It's a, it's a crime novel set towards the end of the Spanish Civil War, so it it's nothing new for me to be writing historical crime, uh, but this is the only this is the first one I've written that's got that specifically in mind. So that was the the objective. Got it on the cover. In, in, Victorian it, mystery on the cover. Exactly. Um, so. Uh, actually, fantastic cover. Before we even get into the book, yeah. uh, I, I, I describe it to to our listeners who haven't seen it. The, the background is the Wrexham Tapestry, which you'll tell us a bit more about, okay. and uh, uh, that is a very, very large-looking adder at the top. It so is. anyone that um, doesn't like snakes is not going to buy this book, Dave. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it, it's got a little bit of a Sherlock Holmesy feel, you know, the uh, speckled band. Yes, it has a bit. And that's it? a compliment, by the Thank way. You. But it's a lovely cover. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so tell us, uh, what drew you to setting um, Victoria? murder mystery in Wrexham in 1876 OK, well apart from the fiction that I write I was sort of tempted a couple of years ago to start thinking about writing a Wrexham history 
walking tour guidebook and we, we published this last year. Uh, it's called Wrexham Revealed um, and it's, it's exactly what, it's, what it says it does. It's so that people can kind of wander around mm. town, take this pocket-sized guidebook with them and just pick up bits of Wrexham history as they, as they do it. And it's been very, very popular. And we published that um, as uh, really as a fundraiser for the Wrexham Carnival of Words, our, our very own literature festival. So I'd started doing the research for this about five years ago got so far through the through writing it and then covid struck so again there's a covid element to this and then it had to go on the back burner until we were able to sort of finish it off publish it earlier this year as i said but in the middle of that there were a couple of things that really leapt out at me about wrexham history that i didn't really know anything about and one of them uh, was um this enormous art treasures exhibition that took place in the summer of 1876. Well, I say the summer, it opened in July 1876 and it ran for four entire months. Mm -hmm. And it was enormous, really, really huge uh, events. A thousand famous paintings, tens of thousands of uh, artifacts and other pieces of works of art. Um, And it it really sort of gripped me, this. And I thought it would be really neat background and one of the things that was displayed because apart from all of the the kind of the traditional art the pictures and so on um there was a totally separate industrial annex where all of the you know the 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 great enterprises really in in wrexham at the at the time uh, were on show and amongst them was the the piece of work that you've talked about the the Wrexham. It's variously called the Wrexham Tailor's Quilt. It isn't. A it's quilt. not a tapestry, is it? It's no. Not, uh, n- no, but it's kind of closer to a tapestry than anything else. It's a patchwork, mm. Uh, mm. and it's made of about four and a half thousand separate pieces of cloth. And the guy who produced it was uh, a local military tailor from College Street in Wrexham. It took him ten years to put it together, mm. and it hung in his in his shop until the exhibition took place and then it went on uh, display and it's still on display at the St Fagans Museum in down in South in Wales Cardiff. Yeah. yeah like the Elgin marbles maybe uh, we should <laughs> well it does come back to Wrexham now and <laughs> yeah, again yeah. which and yeah. and again uh, uh, I was lucky enough to see it when it came to Wrexham in I think 2015 and that's really when it started I think the seeds of this sort of started to, to grow, really, because it's a fantastic piece of work. Mm. It's got all of these quite strange and a little bit mystical uh, sort of allegorical images on it. Some of them are biblical, but it's got the Kevin Viaduct on it as well. It's got the Menai Straits and the Menai Bridge. So it latches together all these kind of images of North Wales and the Bible and other things as well. Um, and I just started thinking about, well, actually, would this be a, a good basis for a crime novel? You know, is it a good setting? So, yeah, I mean, the actual quilt itself doesn't have a narrative thread. No. So along comes Dave, and it's an under. Well, we'll say no more than it underlays <laughs> no. a story. It does, yeah. Yeah. Actually, we should say, sitting here in the stacks in Wrexham Library, we literally could throw a stone and we'd be not far away from where the exhibition in, was. In, indeed, you were literally just across the road. So it sort of ran down what is now Argyle Street and the main exhibition hall was in that building that most people would remember, I suppose, as being the Woolworths building mm. on, uh, on, just on, on Lord Street 
um, between Hope Street and, and Lord Street. So that that was where the main exhibition thing, wasn't it? it was really? Huge. I mean, not it wasn't the great exhibition of eighteen fifty one, but it was huge not, for no, Rex. But not yeah. not not yeah. far off. The building itself was an enormous size. When you got, when you 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 look at the map of of where it physically was. It was a lot of space, and I like to describe it as being like the Crystal Palace. It, it, it yeah. wasn't really, but it was kind of zinc roof, glass panels, some beautiful stained glass inside, these enormous wooden yeah. carved columns supporting the roof and so on, uh, and that, and just endless exhibition. It was fine, and, and apart from the, the, the actual artwork, what's really strange about this exhibition, I, I say to people now who kind of organise events that imagine now, so this exhibition opened at 10 o'clock in the morning and it, and it stayed open until 10 o'clock every night, seven days a week for four months. And apart from the exhibition stuff, there was continuous music taking, taking musical amazing. concerts, organ yeah, recitals, yeah. choirs, military bands, right the way through every single day for four months <laughs> the reason of course why it lost so much money <laughs> yes. um, that, that is uh, another story we'll, we'll come back to the exhibition but tell people a little bit about the the, the story um, uh, itself and the book itself okay so uh, the, it, it's really based around a series of fictitious and mysterious deaths which may or may not be accidental um, and I brought into the story uh, Wrexham's probably most famous historian, Alfred Neobard Palmer. Now, so far as we know, Palmer didn't actually come to Wrexham until four years later, 1880. However, um, he was engaged at the time to a young woman called Etty Francis. And Etty's father, John Francis was the city surveyor in Manchester, but he was also very, very tightly uh, connected to the Eisteddfod, mm -hmm. and he was a supporter of one of the bards who appeared at the same time as the exhibition was taking place, then the very first national Eisteddfod held in Wrexham mm -hmm. was taking place as well during August of, of that year. Now, we know that John Francis came to the Eisteddfod it would have been unusual if Etty, his oldest daughter, yeah. didn't come with him. And therefore, it's just vaguely possible... Oh, of course he was here, ...that Palmer Dave. may have come... Of course he was here. That's, I, I <coughs> wove this into the, into the story. And, um, and I think everybody likes that they were good. So this is really sort of Palmer himself and Etty, his uh, yeah. fiancé, then become embroiled... Uh, don't want to, but they come kind of. They become embroiled in trying to solve mm. the crimes, the I mystery. Have to say, <laughs> it's amazing that if he really did this and experienced the things he experienced, he ever moved back to Wrexham. <laughs> anyway, as as by the by, but he did. But he did. <laughs> he did. Um, and he and may just appear in another story. There's well, I'm going to come on to that. You're jumping the gun now. Uh, I have to say, there are. Anybody who has done history as a subject at uh, what is now Wrexham University, formerly Glyndua, formerly whatever it was, Newey, mm. anybody that's done history will know Alfred Nearbar Palmer because one of the first things they ever have to do is a comparison between 
Palmer's history of Wrexham and A.H. Dodd's Dodds. history of Wrexham. <laughs> I can't see you bringing A.H. Dodd in as a protagonist. Mm, He's a no. little bit drier. <laughs> um, but thank you for breathing life into what those of us who've had to write essays about him think, oh, please. <laughs> so actually, he comes really does come alive. And I, he had an inquiring mind, didn't he? He oh, had that, abs- that, that, that logical oh, research absolutely. Mind. And yeah. what, what's remarkable about him is, it, so we know that he came here to work and he, he suffered really badly with his chest mm. and he'd been working in Manchester and he just couldn't the the you know the environment hideous, in yeah. was hideous as you say it was hideous at the time and he had to move went back to uh we to Thetford uh, and then in 1880 he moved uh, here to Wrexham and he stayed here for the rest of his life um and <clears throat> what's interesting about him is if you read so within 2 years He's writing really elaborate papers about the history mm, of mm. Wrexham in the early 1600s mm. and so on and so forth. But what leaps out at you is that, apart from his contact with Etty, he has no other Welsh connection at all. Mm. And yet he has this grasp of Welsh. So it's he's amazing. kind of explaining the etymology of the place names yeah. in Wrexham that he finds and so on and so forth. And in, so an inquiry in mind, yes, in, yes indeed, and he was involved in a whole range of different in the local literary society yeah. as it was then and so on and so forth. And he becomes immersed in... He just threw himself into oh, the whole uh, thing about... It's a bit like Robin Ryan, yes, isn't it? it? it Who's thrown uh, themselves into the community, I, same I, thing. I make, yeah. the com- I make the comparison yeah, a, a yeah. couple of times. Yeah, yeah very I, much I mean, so. obviously, he's not a Hollywood star. The other interesting thing about him, which, you know, I'm sure you, you, you know this, is that he... he um, he was one of the early people to actually pick up on looking at archives and actual going to the documents and and taking it. Trying, okay, so I'm re- taking this from actual archive. Yes. Not footage, you know, yes. writing, and this is what I've seen. You know, he doesn't get it right all the time. No, but he but actually, he, he's one of the. He really is meticulous. Research yes, he abs- absolutely you know. refuses. He says in in the the prologue to one of his papers that he absolutely refuses to do any second-hand yeah. research. Yeah. He relies on nobody else's primary sources, research, primary sources only, and yeah. so on. Yeah, and uh, and. He's just an interesting character as well, I, I think. You know, apart from, you know, I've fictionalised him, of course I have. But, uh, you know, I think we get sort of pretty close to the yeah, real... I think you do. I, 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 yeah, really did come alive. And I often walk down by the cemetery. Yeah. You know, obviously he's buried in the cemetery. Yeah. His house, house at the back. is there. It's got a Bersham little plaque Road. on it in yep. Bersham Road. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and, it, and, of course, the other... Uh, his uh, his premises on Chester Street, yeah. opposite the Baptist Chapel, yeah, yeah. Uh, where they lived before they moved to Bersham Road and so on. It's it's still there, and you can come, you can cre- recreate it in your mind. Yeah. Really, what that? Well, I, I'm, I'm walking there. around Wrexham. Um, you know, I was walking around Wrexham in your book. Mm. I living here, I can actually visualise it. And and so I, I at one point didn't you get um, um sort of have to work out wh- whose shop was where. Didn't you get a sort of uh, oh, almost we, your own we, Kelly's we, directory? It, well, no, we have got a Kelly's directory yeah, of yeah. Wrexham in 1870s, which is easy to do because we've still got the catalogues, the original catalogues from the 1876 yeah. exhibition. Yeah. And at the back of that 
is a list, they're all advertisements for local traders. And pretty much every single establishment that was in on the High Street at the time, and in Chester Street and a few other places, yeah, yeah. Uh, Hope Street and so on and so forth, they're, they're, they're lit, they're, their adverts are there. So yeah. you, it's not just seeing the names of the people that own them, you know exactly what, what they, they did. did. Yeah, uh, and actually, isn't it surprising when you look at that time uh, in the late nineteenth century? Every building was a retailer of some sort or a workshop of some sort. Yeah, um, slightly different to these days. You know? Yes, it, yeah. yes, but I, I, it's a good question. But I don't know how different. I think, of course, it would look different yeah. if you went, but it still had, you know, a mass of pubs. You know, yeah. every, every third establishment is a pub <laughs> yeah. or a brewery yeah, or whatever yeah. it is. Um, and, you know, the shops obviously were more. You know, were more there were no supermarkets at the time, and so on. So of course there were there were ordinary trading shops. I think we'd you'd still recognise it. I think you'd oh, recognise yeah, the yeah. town It'd if you were transported. It'd be a bit more smelly back. though. Uh, <laughs> Very bit, much. bit bit grimier. Yeah. Which comes through in the book. A little. Yeah. Well, no, no, because <laughs> you often read, or I often read, historical fiction, and it's sanitised. Yeah. You know, it's almost like Errol Flynn's Robin Hood. Yeah. There's not a speck of dirt anywhere. Yeah. I was watching. I was watching um, uh, Werner Herzog's um, Acquire, You know, he goes oh, yeah. up in South, South America, and these pristine yes. Spanish aristocrats <laughs> with white lace in the middle yeah. of the Amazon jungle. Yeah. Your book is not like that. No, it's not. No. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we're limited in what we can say about the plot, so I don't want to spoil it for people. Um, yeah, it's worth saying that the workhouse, which is a big old workhouse, in, mm. in reality comes in into it. I think you, you know, this is where you start to fictionalise things because the real uh, people who ran the workhouse are not. They're not real. No, in the book, of course. No, and, no. and I love the way you bring a little bit of Spain a in. A little bit of Spain. A little bit. You couldn't not, could no. you? Yeah. <laughs> so, so my question really is, what, what, how do you find that balance? Um, when you fill in the gaps between historical facts, so you've got the Great Exhibition, you've got Alfred Neobar Palmer, uh, and, and then the fictionalisation. Um, you know... How so it's a fine balance. You get it right, but how how do you well, go about it? Well, I think, well, there's there's two things. So first of all, you you say gaps. There yeah. are, or it doesn't matter how much history we read, mm. there are always huge gaps in terms of what we don't know. So there is nothing. I have there. There simply is no biography of Alfred Neobar Palmer. That Yet. tells you what. It, no, there, there isn't, and there never will be. That tells you're not going to write what, it then. <laughs> what, what he did in his spare time. Yeah, yeah. no one ever knows. No. He things, probably sat reading archive documents. It, it could well have been, but it's yeah. not very exciting yeah. reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you, so, filling the gaps, I think you have to do that in a way that's interesting, but it's also credible. Yeah. You, you're making it up, but it's got to fit. So uh, what what can't you have him doing? I don't know. You, you know, you 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 can't have Alfred Neobar Palmer going to the bookies <laughs> in the evening. For you know what I mean? It, it would it would have to be silly. Apart from the fact that he was a, a primitive Methodist and so on and so forth. He, um, but apart from you know, so it's got to be stuff that he's doing that's realistic in that sort of. It's got to be at least credible. And then there are the bits, and interesting you mentioned the workhouse because I struggle with this because it's not what I'd normally do, but I needed to have a couple of characters in it that were entirely fictitious 
and not particularly likable. Now, as it happens, the people that ran the warehouse in 1876 were actually staunch members of the community, yes. pillars of society. Um, so so there, I've just completely fictionalised that. And the, the trick for me is then, if you're going to do that, then you have to be honest about it when you do yeah. your, your notes yeah. at yeah. the end yeah. of the book and say, look, apologies to the real people, but th- these these characters are obviously fictional. I just, I just entirely made that, made that up. So I think you have to make that distinction that distinction and that I think gives you the balance then. Mm. You have to be honest about where you've cheated. Yeah, yeah. And you yeah, know, but yeah. the other bits, the gaps, you you fill those in a kind of in a credible way. Yeah. Your your historical notes are great. I, I, I like those almost as much as the as the book. You yeah, know? lots of people say the same thing. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and I, I use of course what I then do is I I usually take the the historical notes, chunks of historical notes, and I could put those on my website. Yeah. Sort of blog posts, so that you know people, if they want to, you know, you've read the you fiction. Look at if more. you want to now kind of study the facts a bit more, this is where maybe you should look. Unlike C.J. Sampson, who writes an almost additional book and sticks it at the back. At the back. <laughs> High quality, but yeah. it's you know yeah. big stuff. Yeah. Um, and this conversation would be, we'd be remiss not mentioning the um, fabulous William Lowe, who was the person who, behind the exhibition and real person, yep. has a plaque in the uh, archway, um, channel tunnel yeah. uh, entrepreneur. Engineer, yeah. yeah, so tell us a bit about William Lowe. Well, William Lowe, Lowe, William Lowe was uh, <coughs> an engineer, he'd been a railway engineer. He moved to Wrexham originally to work on the railways, uh, re- rebuilt a number of quite dodgy bits of <laughs> railway architecture in and around Southern and North Wales, uh, and then became the owner of the Vron Colliery, mm. uh, so he ran that for a while. And in the late 1860s, he'd come up with this plan to build a channel tunnel. And it's, it's a remarkable plan. Um, some of the work eventually began on it, but only went for a couple of miles. But actually, it it's Lowe's model for the Channel Tunnel that eventually became the model for mm. the real Channel wow. Tunnel. It's quite and the, and the workings are still there, aren't they? There's as someone told. I've never yeah, actually I've never seen been, them, but, be but I'm told to that there are. It? Yes, there is about yeah. a mile or so yeah. of the original tunnel. That's that amazing, isn't it? And, and a totally forgotten figure. Oh, entirely forgotten. And again, he was almost as much of a joy to bring back to life yes. as as Palmer was. Um, so the building, so the archway, which you've mentioned, the archway was the entrance to the exhibition. Yeah. Um, and that and the archway is part of the building that he'd had built, the Westminster buildings. He'd had that built for his eldest daughter, Alison, as a that was her dowry. Wow. Basically, so for the rents and so on, that, that and it was just you know born in um, uh, in in Butte at Rotsay, uh, moved here. Why Argyle mm, Street mm. is called Argyle Street because he oh that's why it is he yeah. he he named yeah, it yeah. Argyle Street. Um, he owned it and yeah. he named it Argyle Street. See, this is interesting, <clears throat> isn't it? Because he came all the way from Butte, ended up in Wrexham. Uh, Palmer, Thetford, Norfolk, Thetford, yeah. um, Thomas Paine's patch, yep. um, uh, uh, and Wrexham at that time in the 19th century, people were coming from all over. 
yes. it was actually quite a centre of uh, industry and attractive people and possibly like you say people who maybe didn't want to hang out in the grim environments of Manchester maybe le less so Liverpool but they were you know maybe not quite as bad yeah well, I'm yeah. sure that that's true it yeah, was a yeah. it was obviously very much a magnet for yeah. you know center of many many industries but you know the obvious one is the you know the coming of lager we had all these breweries yes. already yeah, yeah, yeah. in town and then you end up with all these <coughs> uh, sort of German immigrants coming to to create the, the first the British lager first British lager and and Palmer of course was uh, tested the water didn't he he did and, test uh, the water and, and he, this may just into another yeah. okay come on you have to tell right okay so my my question um was going to be please do another one and is it in progress it is in progress yes yeah. so there's a couple of chapters written I, I it's still very much in you know the sort of the thinking stage but the basis of this is this is palmer now back in Me now living in yeah, mexico yeah, yeah, yeah. it's 1884 yeah uh, and he's living here with uh, Etty. He's now moved. He was living at, at, in the Arborin Terrace when they first came to Wrexham. He's now moved to these premises on Chester Street where he runs his own yeah. business. He's worked at Brumbo for a couple of years. He's worked at the Zoidone uh, factory for a couple of years, but he's now running his own business. And uh, he's being asked to kind of analyse some of the waters that may or may not be used for the, for the brewing. Uh, processes and um, uh, well, I, I don't know how much more to tell you. No, he then be, be careful. He then becomes <laughs> embroiled in an, yet another series mm, of sort of mysterious, fantastic deaths that may or may not have something to do with Wrexham Lager. Can't wait! I can't wait, Dave. Seriously, people uh, are hanging on a thread. See what I did there? Um, but I, I think you've really got something here. Yeah, you could turn into Simon McLeave. No, oh, I don't. Eighteen so. books. In, Eighteen books. Yeah, no. In four years. Oh yeah. no, no, Simon. Um, Simon is prolific. <laughs> that's fantastic. I'm so glad that's. So yeah, as I say, it's really difficult to talk about the actual plot of uh, Blood Among the Threads, other than. Um, what we, but he, it's not just mostly in Wrexham, but he does get around. We've got the Menine Straits coming. That's a really exciting yeah, scene. It was, again, know. it was interesting. You, you did that for real, didn't you? Oh, well, I, I do it for real all the time because I, I spend a lot of time on the Menine Straits one way or the other. So I, I, I had to get it into the story uh, somehow. But, the, but again, it was, I was just fascinated by during the exhibition, four months of the exhibition, and every day you get these excursion trains coming yeah. into town from literally all over the place, bringing in visitors to the exhibition. But then you get the excursion trains going out of Wrexham as well, really, really frequently. So mm -hmm. people sort of jump on the excursion trains and they ride them through to uh, Menai Bridge or wherever they happen. Experience North Wales. Experience North Wales. North Wales. Yeah. And yeah. You, you get off at Menai Bridge yeah. and there are these kind of boat rides that you do on paddle steamers up and down the Menai Straits and so on and so forth. It was just too good an opportunity you to... You couldn't miss that. And I, I, you know, the thing that... Actually, I feel quite sad about this, you know, is not giving too much away, but there's there were quite a lot of boats between Liverpool and North Wales, weren't there? Oh, you know, yeah. regular steamers. Oh, daily... Um, Daily yeah, packet why don't service. we have that now? Wouldn't that be fantastic? I mean, they do, but they only run periodically. So you can still, at times, 
you can still go to Llandidno mm. and catch the paddle steam of the Waverley. Oh, yeah, the Waverley, yeah, or the original sort of yeah, Victorian yeah, uh, steamer. Yeah, wow. uh, which is fabulous. Anybody, anybody who was partly what inspired me to write that uh, section oh, of the okay. book, because Anne and I had literally just done a trip on the Waverley and just absolutely... We, we forget we, we were... A seafaring nation and moving around the coast was the even with railways was still quite a cheap way to travel wasn't it, it? It, it it's like people say this because there's quite a lot of railway travel in the book as yeah. well and of course i just get those comments all of the time really about how, how can the nation that pretty much invented that you know we did all of the, the paddle steamers yeah, yeah. and so on and so forth and now we've completely lost that yeah you know that that bit of trade, but more importantly, we invented railways. How can the nation that invented railways now have the worst railway Screw system in most Western Europe? It's bizarre. But yeah. for, you know, if there might be a political answer to that, but we won't go there. <laughs> no, we will, we will. Perhaps not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, it, it's you know we could talk about this. Um, well, we're going to talk about the next book as well. Um, when it comes out uh, but i do urge people if you have got a book token lying around from from christmas go out and buy blood among the threads um by david ebsworth um you will not be disappointed and um, look forward to the next one coming out i mean um yeah i i love the way you draw things in you so spain was your uh, early focus of writing, wasn't it? You know, your Jack Telford oh, yes. trilogy. Um, Big and, passion. And everybody right. loves Jack Telford. Well, I love Jack Telford. Any more Jack Telfords? Yeah. Oh, we're, we're, no, yeah. We're in, the, we're in the middle of... Um, it's a slightly strange one. I'm not sure quite how popular this will be. Uh, but the third of the Jack Telford stories literally takes him up to the end of the Second World War. And then I had a lot of people saying to us, oh, well, what, then what did he do? So uh, this is a, a kind of an anthology of short stories uh, and a novella. Um, so quite bulky, mm. but it takes Jack right the way through from the end of the Second World War until about 1979. Oh, wow. Um, right. And it takes him through, you know, lots of, you know, because he's, he's, he's war correspondent. He's now an international correspondent. So it takes him through sort of Berlin airlift. Um, it takes him through the Suez crisis. It takes him to Hamburg in 1960 to meet the Beatles. <laughs> uh, just a whole batch. Yeah. And it takes him to Portugal for the revolution in Fantastic. 1974. So, you know, those kind of things and a lot more short stories yeah. in between. Because there would have been quite a lot of journalists that came through Spanish Civil War, Second World War, yeah. who were still reporting oh, in, absolutely. in the early 70s. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, so, most, yeah. most yeah. of Jack's stories are sort of based on, yeah. you know, real journalists, yeah, real yeah. correspondence stories, yeah. uh, but fictionalised with Jack in them. And stuff. Great character. A, a great I, character. He still lives yeah. in our spare room. I'm sure he does. <laughs> <laughs> Not in your head, in your spare room. That's, spare That's room. probably it. Um, and uh, I think you probably um, obviously your other Wrexham books are, are based around Elihu Yale um, uh, or sorry his wife Yes. <laughs> and that is a neat trilogy that's probably do you feel that that's, that's a, a complete yes I, I think, think so. I felt, I felt you'd yeah. come yeah yeah 
but also again you, you know what you were saying before there is a, a thread through all of those of what's going to happen here what's happening next you know is there there's is a real thriller element oh good well, I'm, yeah, good yeah. I'm glad you think no, so no no and um, well what a variety once you've discovered um, uh, uh, Dave's writing you'll want you'll want more I've not read everything yet you know ah. I kind of don't want to read everything because I kind of want ah. something on the shelf well so. I'm, I'm hoping because I've, I've the, well, the book that I loved writing was this story of the, the Battle of Waterloo yeah um, but it's told from Kiss of Death, told from the French perspective, and told from the perspective of two French women mm. uh, who, on the battlefields at, at Waterloo the and so on and so forth. Cantonniers, Cantonniers, yeah. Well, one Cantonier and one dragoon yeah. uh, 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 trooper, uh, based on a, again on a, on a real character. They're both based on real characters, really. And I'm I'm genuinely hoping, and it it was very well received. And people who kind of liked the period, liked mm, liked mm, the book. Mm, it's had mm. it had no bad criticisms at all. So, but I'm hoping with the, with the, re the release of the the new Ridley Scott film, there may just be a resurgence of interest. Oh, in there's going to be a huge resurgence. <laughs> but we were just talking before we started recording this, and you're probably going to hate Napoleon, uh, the film. I I didn't see any Cantoniers or women no. in the in the in the French lines in the Waterloo battle scene. Shame. Um, but that probably doesn't surprise you. No, it doesn't. I should at say all. to all listeners that Napoleon the film is not historically accurate. It is a work of fiction. Yeah, but it's a piece of entertainment. It's a piece of Ridley Scott entertainment. Yeah, and you, absolutely. You have to see and, that's it in a, that and that's what he context. says. It's if, entertainment. If you want um, to see a documentary about Waterloo, go and find yeah, a documentary yeah, about Waterloo. I think Waterloo. it's fair to say, Dave, in your writing you're much more attentive to the historical detail you know you, you might twist a few things oh but, I li I'd like to think so and but, I, to be fair to this is however we count them are the 12 or 14 uh, n novels written I, I I'm just hugely proud of the fact that I've never once had anybody you know and they've been read by people who kind of know the subject know the subject matter I've never once had anybody say hang on that that's wrong that's uh, really good. Really, that's really that, exceptional. Uh, Unlike the film of Napoleon, <laughs> the whole French nation are in uproar. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't know whether I've asked you this in previous interviews. I'm going to ask you anyway. But I I uh, I, and I know you've talked to me about he used to used to get the sort of short classics as a as a, a young man. Still but, do. Uh, you know, if you had to pick one. Um, author that you took away to your desert island um who would it be oh dear i i the, two people come to mind instantly one of them is robert harris mm. and the other is rosemary sutcliffe oh yes um i could i could read rosemary i i love robert harris's writing and he, he does it, it, Robert Harris is what I would aspire to be as a as a writer because he has that ability to move from one period to yeah. another and write about all of them as though he really knows what he's talking I about. Don't, unbelievable! His research must be superb. off the scale. Yes, absolutely superb. And they're not short books either. They're they? not short books, but and they're all page turners, you know. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. know, you never fed up with them. So those, but I think uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe. It was Rosemary Sutcliffe. I think first made me and this is when I was about 14 I suppose early 1960s who first made me think about historical fiction as an as an art form as separate yeah. from 
other forms yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of writing. Yeah. And uh, again, prolific. She she was a she, and, and a great writer. Her, oh, her 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 English is immaculate. Never read anything that she's written that, that wasn't absolutely first class. And she has that lovely way of being able to kind of take you know quite complex bits of mythology yeah. and so on, um, and and turn them into very readable. Where it's about imagining what I don't know. Fifth century Ireland was yes. was really like and yeah. so on and so forth. Again, yeah. Bring it to life for you in that sort of way. Steps. I mean, the standout for me, well, for me, Eagle of the Ninth. Yeah. I, I mean, only because it was read to us at primary uh, school. Yes. And then uh, I just know it backwards. I have it on audio, you know, an audio book. Yeah. Um, we used to listen to it with the kids and yeah. the cars on journeys, and and I know my son. Uh, one of my sons, when he can't sleep, he'll put Eagle of the Night on. That's that's very nice. Yes, yeah, no, and I, she's I, a great storyteller. Yeah, I like it, but the book that ca- I have to say, uh, the book okay. that captured yeah. me yeah. was actually Sword at Sunset. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I've read and read, I've reread that so many times over yeah. the past whatever it is, sixty years or something now, um, uh, and I've got two, three copies of it, I think, and. In different well clips about yeah they are very very well done. I love them and the other one was uh, the the novel her novel which is less well read called the White Rider mm, yeah. which is the story of Sir Thomas Fairfax and the and that introduced me at the age of about sixteen to the whole thing about the English Civil Wars yeah. and how complicated they were and just a brilliant brilliant what, story. What, see what a gift. She yeah. she and she didn't have an easy life herself. Oh, no, she, she did not. Uh, no, no. Well, I'm so glad you. We we should do a whole episode about Rosemary Rose Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe. You know, so, well, Dave, look, thank you for for giving You're me your welcome. time. You need to get away and start writing about. Um, well, I don't know, Jack Telford, Palmer, whoever you feel like today, and uh, um, it's it's really good to talk to you. I should just say before we finish about Rosemary Sutcliffe, I was li- literally looking yesterday. You know how adverts come up on uh, on screen, and I can't remember what I'd been looking at, but slightly foxed, who are a, a company that produce beautiful copies, a bit like the Folio Society. Oh, yeah. I've just done a complete series of all her novels Is that for right? about 126 no. quid. Yeah. Oh, it may just be a, a selection, but they are just they just like that beautiful books Aww. great thank you so much Dave. you're very very welcome um, uh, thank you all for listening uh, i urge you all to go out and buy um blood among the threads come to wrexham buy wrexham revealed follow the the real places in in the book um and uh so until next time on bookalicious i wish you all happy reading